You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 50, and we're going back to the Western Front because during the fall of 1915, the French and British launched a major assault. This is going to be a two-part series, and I've already done an episode on the Battle of Laws. This first part, I'm going to discuss the British, and since I've already talked about the battle, I'm going to talk about the buildup. Prior to September 25th, there was a massive buildup on the British side. A lot of planning, preparation, and movement was involved for the battle, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. For part two, I'm going to be focusing on the French. Well, not really the French, but a particular Pailu on the French front. His perspective on the war is unique. But before I kick this off, I have a smorgasbord of things to go over. Life updates, recaps of the last episode. I want to recap 1915 from August through November, and then I'll get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. I don't have any life updates to share as of yet. Just enjoying the summer months and enjoying being off from my schooling. Actually, you know what? I will share something. If you're interested in getting to know me, I'll share some background on my schooling. Uh, Let's see. In 2020, I went back to school for my second degree. I have a bachelor's degree in business. And now I'm working on a mechanical engineering degree after my pal introduced me to fire sprinkler designs or fire sprinkler systems. Along this path, I was introduced to the fire inspector role from a fire captain. On the side, I've been taking classes for a fire inspector, which I just completed a major part of. I still have a hazmat class to take, which I'll be taking in September, but that's a one day class. So it's not going to affect the podcast. So yeah, I'm not really sure what road I'll end up down the way. And honestly, it's nothing I'm stressing about, which is good. Okay, so what am I drinking for this episode, which I am excited to talk about? I like Moscow mules, especially in the summer. I personally think they're refreshing and damn tasty. But I've been wanting to venture off and try other variations. And there's several variations. I didn't want to do whiskey. It's just too hot for whiskey right now. But tequila? (laughs) Yes, tequila sounds good right now. So I'm drinking a Mexican mule. And what makes a mule Mexican? Tequila, of course. And here's the recipe. You take four lime wedges. Basically, it comes out to one lime. Five mint leaves. I like mint. If you're not a fan, you can cut this back or you can eliminate the mint. But I like mint. Muddle until it gets nice and juicy. Add three quarters ounce agave syrup. Two ounces of tequila. I'm using Casadores Blanco. Shake on ice, then pour into a copper mug. And add more ice into the mug, then top off with your favorite ginger beer. I like light ginger beer because I'm using syrup. I find the light ginger beer a good balance because I don't want my drink too sweet. But hey, 
to your mule, use whatever ginger beer you fancy. And here's the thing about your tequila selection. You want to use a Blanco for this one. And don't go for the really good or pricey stuff because you're masking the taste of tequila with all these ingredients. But for example, I have a nice bottle of Don Julio 70 that my mother-in-law gave me. Great tequila, meant for sipping, so you really get to enjoy it. Don't waste that in a mixed drink. Casadores is reasonably priced, it's good, and you won't feel bad for mixing. Now, let's taste this Mexican bad boy. And I got a, a nice grip on this cup so it doesn't slip out of my hand. <laughs> yeah. I think this is my favorite mule. I like this over the Moscow mule. This is don't don't say it, Rich. This is fantastic. I am digging that. So for the last episode, I went off the beaten path. It was fun, kooky, and some interesting stories. I talked about just a couple of many unidentified aircraft sightings around the world during the Great War. The Red Baron one, I really got a kick out of. I mean, it's really ridiculous, but entertaining, no doubt. It was a story that was put together by a newspaper. May not have been the most reliable source, but it was printed and distributed. There were some questionable sightings that made you think, it could be something other than military, but overall, for the most part, I think the Germans were running amok in the sky with their planes and zeppelins. And look, if you think some of this could be a UFO, maybe from another world because that's what you believe, more power to you. You might be right. Who knows? I'm definitely open to the idea of UFOs now that the government is acknowledging them. But again, for me to seal the deal, to put a stamp on the envelope, I need to see one for myself in person to say 100% they're real. All right, enough of that. The main subject of this episode is the massive British buildup of troops and munitions prior to the Battle of Laws. There was a lot of moving parts for the Tommies on the Western Front. Okay, I'd like to recap what's been taking place so far or at least starting around August for the Great War in a whole. And there's a lot that's going on, not just at Gallipoli. There's still so much to talk about on the Eastern Front, actually on all fronts at that. When I'm done with this two-part series, I'm gonna do an episode on the Eastern Front and the Middle East. So I'm not as close to being done with 1915 as I thought I was. To sum up quickly the events between August and October, it goes like this. Actually, it's August and November. During the summer of 1915, the Russians had been in a full retreat from the German war machine. Warsaw fell on August 5th. By August, the Eastern Front Line had become the longest trench line in history. However, as the Germans continue their push, taking key city after key city, the line begins to shrink. German artillery cannot be matched. It's devastating the Russians. As the Russian line decreases in length, it condenses the Russian troops, allowing them to put up a better defense by the end of September. Also by August, the Germans had taken roughly around 1.5 million prisoners of war. Yes, I'll say that again, 
1.5 million prisoners of war. Russia is hurting. Civil rest at home is growing. However, the Russians aren't down for the count yet. By the end of September, they'll start producing 1 million shells per month, which will help the troops out tremendously and will halt the German advance. But at this point, the Russian army is now under direct command of the Tsar himself. Germany no longer sees them as a big threat, so they start concentrating more troops on the Western Front. Again, I'll be having an episode on the Eastern Front for the end of 1915. There's too much good stuff to pass this by. We know what's happening at Gallipoli during this time. If you don't, check out my Gallipoli series. The Western Front will explode into action in September after a somewhat quiet summer. Bulgaria enters the war. The British are advancing on Baghdad. Again, this is too much good history to pass up, so I'll have an episode on that. Serbia is beginning to fall. French troops arrived at Salonika, but found themselves outnumbered just like the Serbs. However, this didn't stop them from bravely putting up a defense that lasted through October. By November, Serbian civilians began to flee for the mountains in Albania to escape the death and destruction. And that sums up August through, well, November of 1915. A nice recap after coming off the Gallipoli series, kind of get us caught back up. Now, let's get this show started. After the British declared war in 1914, and when the situation became grim on the Western Front, or knowing this would go well past Christmas, Lord Kitchener began his buildup of his new Kitchener army. His plan was to get 500,000 volunteers trained up and ready to be deployed by mid-1916. However, the situation had changed drastically come summer 1915, so they were pulled up to support this new fall offensive. The British focus would be laws, and the French would focus on Champagne and Artois. For the French, this would be known as the Second Battle of Champagne and the Third Battle of Artois. After months of waiting, July finally arrived. These impatient soldiers, so eager to get into this war, these new soldiers with their new rifles slung on their shoulder, began their march out of camp towards the railway station to board the trains. Between July and September, more than 150 battalions of Kitchener's army had departed for France. Many of these soldiers had no experience with foreign travel. This was a strange, new, yet exciting world to them. Thousands upon thousands of letters began to arrive home shortly after departing, beginning with, Dearest Mom or Dearest Wife, then detailing how they were being housed in farms in the countryside of France. Truth about that is, yes, they were on farms, but they weren't exactly living in billets. Farms in the area were used by the military. Inside the home, it might have housed some officers, maybe an NCO, but the regular troops were put in barns and pigsties. There was enough room there for the troops, but this wasn't exactly the most pleasant living conditions. For the past year, these farms had been used by other units. We're talking a lot of troops coming in and out, manure from the animals, 
human feces providing rich nutrients to the soil from the past spring. Use your imagination what the smell must have been like along with the trash. Between France and Flanders, every available farm, house, or structure that could be used as billets was requisitioned by the British military in its sector. The northernmost structure used for housing troops was a Trappist monastery just miles beyond Ypres. I think it's the Abbey of West Vlederen, but I'm not positive. The book I read doesn't say what Trappist it was, but this is the closest one to Ypres, and it was operating during, during both world wars. The Abbey would not only house troops, but would also care for the wounded Allied soldiers. But don't be fooled by these monks and their robes. Oh yes, they do sin. They sin off the nectar of the gods. Monks are known for brewing beer in Belgium. In fact, some of the best beers in the world are brewed by monks in Belgium, even up to today. Actually, not only Belgium do monks brew beer, but also in France, England, Netherlands, Austria, Italy, and Spain. Monks brewing beer goes back to the 5th century. Over 600 monasteries began brewing beer throughout Europe. They wanted to become self-sufficient and they wanted to provide pilgrims with food and beverage. One of the most famous Belgian Trappists today is Chimay. I believe they distribute to most countries. It's readily available in the US. Chimay Gold or White, whatever it is, it's amazing. I should have drank a Chimay for this episode. Oh well, I'm enjoying my mule. Anywho, this turned out to be a nice little spot for the British because the monks were more than happy to sell the soldiers beer since their normal distribution had been disrupted by the world gone mad. Word of the monks selling beer soon spread and soldiers would walk long distances to get their hands on the dark, strong liquid of the gods. Can't blame them. It kept them happy for the time being. A battalion medical officer, also housed at the monastery, wasn't as happy about the beer as everyone else. There's always got to be one in the bunch. Thing is, he wasn't so much against them selling the beer, he was strongly against the pond at the monastery which surrounded the walls. He claimed it was filthy and a breeding ground for a disease. He feared an epidemic would arise from this. The beer Gestapo took matters into his own hands and or ordered the royal engineers to drain the pond. A couple days later, signs were posted around the monastery saying, There is no more beer. Even the officers had acquired a taste for the juice, so they confronted the abbot. They asked, what happened to the beer? Why had it run out? The abbot, the only person with the permission to speak, opened his arms with a gesture of despair and said, you have drained the pond. There is no water to make beer. Therefore, there is none. Talk about a major party foul. You could imagine these officers up in arms about the matter. Well, word of this got to higher than the battalion medic. The royal engineers were immediately ordered to refill the pond. Soon after, the beer began to flow. Yet some of the troops claimed it had lost its flavor. Water is the main ingredient in beer, and not all water tastes the same. 
So you change the water, you change the taste. There's always going to be the debate who has the best beer. I say it's between Germany and Belgium. Belgium is very strong and very tasty. Germany is very tasty and not as strong, allowing you to drink more. You can be your own judge on this. For me, my vote is on the German side. Just because my stomach can only take so much Belgian beer. It's heavy. It can get rough in the gut. But let's move on. Though Kitchener's army of new recruits lacked in combat experience, they didn't lack in trench digging. In fact, they'd become quite familiar with the spade and sandbags during their training. So when the rear trenches were damaged by shelling, they would use these new soldiers to rebuild them, which meant they would also be in the line of fire. A soldier described fixing a hole in a trench line when his buddy became the first casualty from his unit. He wrote the following. The trenches had been fired on and they'd broken them all up and we had to go in there and make, make them tidy again with sandbags. This was right in the firing line, so we both went in there, Bill and me. And one had to hold the sandbag open while the other filled it up. Bill went up on the top with a sandbag to where the hole was all broken down to make it up. I was down below while he was standing up doing it and then the bullets started coming over. I said to him, look out, Bill, they've got you spotted. Well, he didn't bob down quick enough. The bullet just missed me and went to the back of the trench, made my ears whistle. The noise of it and the next moment before Bill could say anything, he got it right in the head. It blew his head open and his brains was all coming out. I was right next to him and his brains covered my tunic like the row out of a herring. Private F. Bastable, 7th Battalion, Queen's Own Royal West Kent Regiment, 55th Brigade, 18th Division. Bill Beckington was just one among many of the casualties for the new army after they arrived in France. And some of these boys weren't of legal age to have even been in the army. Even from the beginning of the war, on all sides, lost children, often orphans, Children who'd been cast aside by society, they saw the war as a way to escape and find meaning along with patriotism. Some children were as young as 13 years old, and although in most cases a child that young would have been used as a high-ranking officer's runner, still doesn't make it right, but others were on the front lines with the rest of the men. And they weren't all lost children. Kitchener's army pulled in boys from the Church Lads Brigade. Now, we don't have the Church Lads Brigade in America, or at least I don't believe we do. I think it's pretty similar to the Boy Scouts, with an emphasis on the church. Back then, the Church Lads and Boy Scouts would train with rifles and military-style marching. They were big on patriotism. So, when Kitchener was seeking his 500,000 volunteers... Many of these underage boys were encouraged to lie about their age to get in. Again, these boys were high on patriotism. They didn't want to be left behind and miss the war. Not only was it young men, but also young boys believed the war was their rite of passage. So when mothers started getting letters about their sons being KIAs, and some of them weren't quite 18 years of age, 
Naturally, this stirred up a hot pot back home, which didn't mean squat because this continued through the rest of the war and actually into the Second World War. Now, these new soldiers are wet behind the ears. They're cherries, as we call them, inexperienced. But the seasoned vets sure were glad to see them because by September, the British line had stretched out drastically. It now stretched down to the Somme, all the way up to La Basse. This is quite a distance. I'm looking at my map. The Somme is just northeast of Amiens, uh, which is north of Paris. You can actually look up the town of Albert if you're not familiar with the Somme. Albert is at the Somme. From the Somme, you're gonna head north towards Arras, passing Lens, then passing Vermelles and Bethune to the left. Then you'll hit La Basse. Again, this is a big stretch of line. Of course, the vets are glad to see fresh meat pouring in. Visible from the British trenches behind the German line is the mining town Laws, which of course is where the Battle of Laws took place. The area around Laws is relatively flat with these massive slag heaps created for mining. The flat ground and weather will play a factor when the battle kicks off on the 25th of September. Note, there's two Lawses. There's the town of Laws just southwest of Lille, then there's Laws northwest of Lens. The Laws northwest of Lens is the location this battle pertains to. The summer months made the conditions in the trenches hot and sticky, along with fly-ridden. However, summer months for artillery bombardments slowed down quite a bit, which the soldiers would happily welcome, even if it meant living with monkey butt. Although monkey butt can be very unpleasant. This also gave the British time to build up their munitions for the upcoming battle. There was also a new weapon that was introduced by the Germans in April, which they would now use gas. Even though the use of gas was condemned by the civilized world, the British looked at it as fair game at this point. They were now issuing new gas masks to the troops that were supposed to be a big improvement from the first model. The new one had glass goggles instead of a mica panel and also included a tube to blow out of. The breath had to be drawn in from the nose and out through the tube. By the early part of September, the new 21st and 24th division, divisions arrived in France. They had been scattered around the villages of Epperlex. This was about 25 miles from the front. Two divisions is a lot of men, but 25 miles from the front is still a good distance. At the front, along the eight miles that spread from Aubers Ridge to Laws and Lens, the chaos from the war had simmered down just enough for the men to begin doing some work. The ground at this area is chalky, white chalky. For 10 days, actually nights because they dug at night, for 10 nights before the battle kicked off, the British soldiers dug 12,000 yards of trench lines. They dug assembly trenches behind the lines, they dug communication trenches, they dug saps that poked into no man's land, they even dug trenches into no man's land itself. There was white chalky trench lines popping up everywhere. The, the Germans would have to have been blind not to see that these trenches 
were expanding every day. They knew a major attack was coming. It's like a zombie movie. Somebody gets bit and quickly these dark protruding veins begin to grow from the bite. Then suddenly they have a taste for blood. In this case, the chalky white trenches are quickly expanding towards the Germans each day. And they know that death and destruction is what comes next. Along with trenches, mines were being dug in preparation for the kickoff. The objective of the miners was to dig until they were underneath enemy trenches, then detonate the mines when ready. Men were recruited to help the miners, and as bad as mining sounds, this was actually a good deal. They were pulled away from the trenches, they only had to work four hours a day, and they were provided showers from the local mining companies. This sure beats working in the trenches, being exposed to enemy fire, and with no bath or shower. Then there was the special gas brigades. Men also volunteered for this. Although this job didn't quite pan out to be what they thought it was gonna be. Volunteers were requested from anybody who had knowledge of chemistry. Immediately, men began to volunteer, thinking they were gonna be sent to some chemistry lab way beyond the front lines. But chemistry had nothing to do with what they were volunteering for. They would be used as human mules, muscle work. Their job was to unload the gas cylinders from the trains at Gore, then load them onto wagons. They would then be transported to the trenches. They would arrive at a dump site, then the men would take the cylinders from the dump site to the trenches. In some cases, this could be up to a mile and a half. Now, each cylinder weighed around 60 pounds. That's empty. The liquid also weighed about 60 pounds. So roughly each cylinder weighed around 120 pounds. It took two men per cylinder, and in some cases could take them up to four hours to move a cylinder from a dump site to the line. And they didn't only carry cylinders, they had to carry connecting pipes up to seven feet in length, parapet pipes up to 10 feet in length. They also had to have the rifle on, on them. This clearly wasn't the best job to volunteer for, although it did get them away from the line for some time. By September 20th, all the cylinders had been carried to the front lines and were installed by Royal Engineers in specialty dug emplacements well guarded by sandbags. The night before the battle, portions of the wire in front of the British trenches were to be cut, providing gaps for the soldiers to launch into no man's land from. They would assault towards the German lines in hopes that the German wires would be severed by the artillery shrapnel. Here we have another key battle that's dependent on the artillery to save its rear end. Everything from machines and advancements on weapons that had evolved into the Great War are coming into play. The evolution of grenades, trench mortars, machine guns, rifles such as the Lienfeld, planes, flamethrowers, and now gas. However, artillery is still the one weapon commanders believed that if you had the superior guns, you're going to win this war. Through the greater part of September, artillery batteries continued to arrive at the front. Positions had been dug closer to the lines now. And compared to other battles following, the fall offensive of 1915 wasn't the biggest in artillery, yet 
This probably was the largest amount of artillery used since the war kicked off, at least at the Western Front. On the 21st of September, the guns opened up their bombardment, unleashing hell. A gunner who kept a diary wrote about this, saying the following. September 21st, the opening of the bombardment, heavy firing all day by the field artillery, continual roar all day. Sounds champion after doing nothing and we have great hopes of advancing. Fired 12 rounds off my gun. September 22nd, last night about 10 p.m., heavens what a row. It was like hundreds of railway trains going through the air. This is the second day and the big guns began the earnest at 12. How it is going and what it is like for the Germans, goodness knows. I do hope it is a success. September 23rd, bombardment worse than ever, especially in the afternoon. I was number one on the gun and it alone fired 92 rounds. My head was aching somewhat. Refugees leaving the village, but the Germans are scarcely replying at all. September 24th, but bombardment's still going on. Thunderstorm last night and it was a whisper compared to the artillery fire this afternoon. I have heard some since I came out here, but none to hold a candle to this. Our gun fired 62 rounds. Gunner Alan Watson, 13th Siege Battery, Royal Garrison Artillery. The days of the bombardment leading up to the 25th of September did one thing for sure. It raised the spirits of the soldiers. For them, hearing the continued roar of the guns and the distant thunderous explosions led them to believe that they were really giving it to the Huns. Even the British 1st Army Commander General Haig seemed to be pleased with this along with the Commander-in-Chief John French. But one general that wasn't so optimistic was General Wilcock, Commander of the Indian Corps. He and Haig, well, let's just say they didn't have the best relationship. They had crossed paths before and it wasn't friendly. And Wilcock was known to voice his opinions and concerns. Wilcox's main issue at this point was the use of his Indian Corps. Up to now, they had suffered mass casualties, and in his opinion, his men were being mishandled. Wilcock had a right to be frustrated. The Corps did suffer major casualties up to this point, including officers. His number in men had drastically decreased, and there was no chance in getting replacements from Indian time. So I'd say Wilcock for sure had the right to be frustrated. But a general has to keep his composure and not openly voice his frustrations. Not a general. That's for privates. The replacement officers he received weren't familiar with the Indians, so there was a culture barrier there. The Indians received no leave and their provisions weren't adequate. He was also frustrated that their achievements so far hadn't been announced in any Indian newspapers. Overall, his concern was for the men. But before the September 25th kickoff, senior leadership convened to discuss the offensive. Wilcock openly started griping. Haig snapped and sacked Wilcock right there. The Indian Corps had lost their commander this close to the new offensive. But even with their commander gone, they still had an objective for this offensive. 
The Indian Corps was to attack on the left of Laws across from New Chapelle. Their first objective was Aubers Ridge. After a successful attack on Laws, they would push up. Casualties were expected, but High Command believed this time it would be worth it. To the north at the Ypres salient, the 4th Gordon Highlanders were to fight yet again at Hogue. The Gordons are familiar with the area by now. Hogue is just outside of Ypres to the east. I know I've mentioned visiting Hogue Crater in the past, but seriously folks, if you have an opportunity to visit, do yourself the favor and visit. I'll be going back sooner than later. I didn't get to see nearly a quarter of what I wanted to see. Problem is, I was on a timeline, which was not even a full day. I couldn't rent a car and do it my way, so I had to jump on a tour bus. And the tour bus was cool, but I need to be running my own safari. Just around Hope Crater, there's Sanctuary Wood, Hill 62, Mount Sorrel, Hill 60, Caterpillar Hill, and, and much more. And it's just on the outskirts of Ypres. One day won't be enough. I would say two solid days. And even then, you may not see everything. I'm telling you, there's dozens and dozens of memorials, cemeteries. There's craters, bunkers, observation posts, and preserved trenches all throughout Flanders. Oh, I, I can't wait to go back. Sorry, let me get back to this. New company from the Gordon Highlanders had been deemed the company to be sacrificed at their line. And let me explain. Part of the plan was to trick the Germans into believing that the main attack would be at the salient. And you company, you as in uniform, was to take the lead on this. They weren't even trying to hide the fact that they were using the soldiers as bait. Even Kitchener went to see them off. He bluntly told the men that the attack was in the nature of a sacrifice and was to help the main offensive, which was to be launched elsewhere. He then went on to say, because of this, no attempt was made to conceal our preparations. He then wished them as much luck as he could. He said, goodbye and good luck. I mean, how would you feel knowing this? Knowing your one job during this battle was to be the bait. That's a tough pill to swallow and to stay motivated after that. Needless to say, the Germans knew an attack was coming, and they even knew when. At one German location on the front, they hung a placard propped up on the wire that said, Why not attack today, Jock? Why wait for the 25th? The day before the battle, those who were going over in the first wave made their way to the front. They were issued green envelopes that contained a burial registration. They could also put private letters in there for loved ones back home. Rations and munitions were handed out, rifles inspected along with their barking dogs, their feet. Through the night, most of the men stayed up singing songs or gambling. The guns continued to roar in the dark, vibrating the ground in the trenches that the troops either sat or laid in. On top of this, a thunderstorm had rolled in that night along with the rain. September 25th had arrived. The battle was just hours away. The special gas brigades 
were at the front lines making a final inspection ready to open up the gas that would run through the 10-foot pipes leading into no man's land in hopes to exterminate the enemy. The men from the special gas brigade wore special uniforms which were red, white, and green. They wore this so the officers and sergeants didn't mistake them for stragglers or men who refused to go over the top. Behind the gas brigade was six divisions of infantry waiting in the assembly trenches. Each division carried flags on long poles, each one different in colors. Sir Douglas Haig spent most of the night pacing back and forth, concerned about the weather, more specifically the wind. As we know, wind would play a huge part in the gas. At 3 a.m., the final weather report was brought to Haig. He asked, when is a good time to attack? He was given the answer, as soon as possible. ASAP was at dawn. The order was immediately given. At 0550 hours, the gas was to be turned on. 40 minutes later, the infantry would go over the top. Early morning nautical twilight came on. The rain began to ease up and also the wind. And if you're Hague or actually anybody on the British line for that matter, you don't want the wind to settle. Because if the wind settles, what's going to move the gas? It was also imperative that the gas clouds should be able to engulf the Germans for at least 40 minutes. This is important because the gas masks were only effective up to 30 minutes. If gas is present past the 30 minutes, you got yourself a real problem. There was also gas supply issues for the British, so the plan was to release six gas cylinders the first 12 minutes, then at two minute intervals, four smoke candles would be lit, then another 12 minute burst of gas, then six minutes of smoke, and in the last two minutes before the assault, the final and largest burst of smoke would engulf the front and cover the infantry as they went over the top. Because of the supply issue, this was the best plan they can come up with. The key was to get the gas to last past 30 minutes so the Germans would start inhaling it. A gas soldier wrote the following as the time was near to release the gas. By 5.30 a.m., I had everything ready to start at zero and I went back a short distance to see whether the wind was favorable. Finding it blowing very lightly from the south, southwest, and varying considerably in direction, I decided not to carry on and warned the men to do nothing without further orders. At 5.40 a.m., a mine was blown up in the front of my line. The charge appeared to have been weak as no debris was thrown up, only an immense cloud of smoke. From the direction in which the smoke drifted, I was confirmed in my impression that it would not be safe to carry on. Lieutenant A.B. White, Royal Engineers. Lieutenant White was placed at the second division line at Labasse Canal. The mine that was detonated did little damage because the Germans who were normally occupying this, they had moved 50 yards back to another line. All the mine explosion did was give them a real-time example of how the wind would play out. As the minutes got closer to zero hour, machine gun teams opened up on the German lines in hopes this would rip through some wire to create paths for the soldiers. 
they were putting several hundred rounds to the guns and then it hit them, the gas. The men's eyes began to burn and water, also choking as the gas turned directions and hit them. Some claimed to have smelled lilac and believed they were next to a lilac field, but there was no lilac fields. This, my friends, was chlorine gas. At 12 minutes to six, Lieutenant White managed to get through the Brigadier General to inform him of the situation. The general told his junior officer that he was well aware of the situation and had already been in touch with the second division headquarters. However, he still had direct orders to carry on with his mission. At 6 a.m., Lieutenant White ordered the gas to be turned on. The Battle of Laws was now underway. And it's important to note here that any success at loss for the British was also dependent on the French success. On the next episode, I'll recap how the Battle of Laws played out, which I also did an episode on this. It's episode 31. Then I'll recap how the French battles played out before getting into the first-hand account of a French Pailu at the Artois region. There's exciting stuff. All right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed this. I'm going to fix myself another mule and relax for the evening. I got a couple shows to catch up on. Remember, folks, you can follow me on Facebook at Over the Top, a Great War podcast, on Instagram at OTTGW podcast, which is also the same for Twitter. You can email the show at OTTGW podcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can get every episode for free at my website, www.ottgwpodcast.com. And you can find the show on many other podcast apps. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.